are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. Our reading from scripture this morning is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, everything that's in it, the world and those who live in it. For God has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in God's holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who don't lift up their souls to what's false, and who don't swear deceitfully. They'll receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek God, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who's the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who's this King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. Lord God, may only your word be spoken, and may only your word be heard. Amen. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I want to thank all of you for the warm welcome, and thank Charlie uh, and Chris for their warm welcome also. Um, I wish Charlie hadn't leaned quite so enthusiastically into the decades ago part of the <laughs> introduction, but I suppose he's a truthful guy, and that's uh, the reality that we that we face. And I uh, want I assured Charlie at the earlier service, and I'll assure him again here that I come in peace sometimes when seminary classmates invite old friends to arrive. They they've come bearing gifts of unwanted stories of past transgressions, but. Charlie is in good shape. He's been clean from day one. You're in good hands, which you already know, and it's really great to to be here. Um, And I want to thank all of you also for taking on over these last couple of weeks this topic of caring for God's creation 10 years ago, 15 years ago or longer. This, this just wasn't something that religious communities were engaging with. And you would say to churches or synagogues or mosques or temples, you'd say religion in the environment, and people would furrow their brow and stare at you like you had just uttered some impenetrable Buddhist koan about these two things that were just totally disconnected. But, but now um, the connections are getting made. The light's going on. We recognize more and more that these things go together and that they matter a lot. And I'm really thrilled that you all are taking this on. And Green Faith, um, the organization that I serve, is is eager and ready to walk with you forward into the future. 
And I wanted to, to continue by sharing a story, um, which I hope will help us walk more deeply into this. So there's a, a woman whose name is Amina Musse. She's Somalian. She lives, uh, lived for many, many years, as had her parents and grandparents for generations before, on a small subsistence farm several hours outside of Mogadishu in Somalia. And for many, many generations, while life had not been easy, it, it had been possible. It had been sustainable. Small subsistence farmers get by. They grow enough to eat in good years. They save a little bit. In lean years, they take from the storage. Fortunate ones, and Amina was among these, have a couple of animals, which in addition to producing milk and, uh, and, and other products that are helpful for survival, they also serve in some senses, I've come to understand, as a sort of 401k plan for those in the developing world, as some basic store of, of wealth and of security that can be a lifeline in hard times. And so Amina had this life, worked the land, until about seven or eight years ago when this just absolutely cruelly devastating drought hit the region, the kind of drought that is now far more common due to, to climate change. And slowly but surely, it became next to impossible to make a living. You know, no rain, no crops. It just doesn't work. And when you've got no way to get food, people in the community started uprooting and moving into uh, Mogadishu, into the outskirts, to try out of desperation to find the means to survive. Shanty towns grew up around the the city, thousands of people living in these very rudimentary shacks, no running water, horribly unsanitary and unsafe conditions. But it was the only choice they thought they had. Amina, on her mobile phone, called a friend of hers who'd moved in a couple of years previously, said, what's it like? You know, because things had gotten next to impossible. Living where she was, her friend says, it's terrible. I mean, it's really awful. All of the conditions I just described, terribly unsafe for women. You know, barely any way to eke out a living. You sort through the trash to find what kind of scraps you can. You beg, you take any kind of work you can get. It's miserable. And Amina hung up and considered what she was facing and what she'd just heard, and she upped and moved into the settlers' encampment, lived with her friend for a while inside a six-foot by ten-foot sort of corrugated cardboard and metal shack, you know, survived as well as she could. This, this story was playing out thousands and thousands of times over as people had no choice but to move into the, into the city. And as demand for the land grew, its value, of course, rose, and developers wanted to get a hold of it. So a couple of days after Christmas in 2019, um, early one morning, about a dozen bulldozers appeared at the periphery of this 5,000-person settlement. And they blew their air horns. And five minutes later, at the behest of the developers who'd hired them, they 
proceeded to clear out this settlement. Human rights groups had heard that this was going to happen, and they'd asked the developers, please give people a two-week notice or something so they can get a hold of their meager possessions and, and move out. Nope. Right on through. And at that point, Amina Musa disappeared, and we don't know where she is. Maybe she's in another similar kind of encampment. She may have died. We just don't know. And, you know, this, this story, you know, nowadays in, in the United States and in a, too many places, you talk about climate change, and you, you immediately get sucked into this, from my perspective, just brain-dead, politically polarized argument. And people treat it as if it's some sort of debate to be had. I mean, come on, this is about millions and millions of people and their well-being. And I don't know how you can be a person of faith and not reckon with that. It's just, you know, it just is so clear. And then you go from here. About uh, six or seven years ago, some really, really good investigative journalists started uncovering the minutes and records of meetings between fossil fuel company executives and their chief scientists. And with an accuracy that was just amazing, these scientists are predicting what's going to happen if, if we keep on burning fossil fuels. And they're saying, you know, they're going to get increased severe weather, heat rise, sea level rise. It's going to cause destabilization. The impacts are going to be worse in poor communities and all of these sort of thematic areas that I'm mentioning sort of accompanied by graphs and charts that are accurate to remarkably precise levels. And what really sort of blows the doors off is that these memos weren't from the 2010s or the aughts or the 90s, from the 80s and the 70s. And it's like, come on, you know? The, the Bible, of the psalm we said today says, you know, who gets to look God straight in the eye? Those who don't bald-faced lie, you know? And so we've got this conundrum, this real threat to the well-being of the human family with the impacts cruelly and disproportionately apportioned. I mean, most people will be impacted one way or the other. But there's no question that those who are going to be impacted worst are, are those who had the least to do with the problem in the first place. And, you know, it just brings to mind um, the fact that for a lot of people, they hear this stuff and the reaction, understandably, is they feel overwhelmed, they feel depressed, they feel fed up, and they sort of want to take an exit ramp and go watch the Super Bowl or something like that. And... I'm here to tell you that there's another better way to sort of lean into this reality that we face. I am from New York, and it's an Irish saying, and it may be a New York Irish saying because it sounds like it, about is this a, a private fight or can anybody get involved? And I want to offer that in the spirit of us as people of faith, because throughout history, when the human family has faced these kinds of existential, morally defining questions, we have stood up 
and we have done ourselves proud. And we can do so again in terms of the climate crisis, in the civil rights movement, in the freeing of India from cruel colonial rule, in the anti-apartheid movement, the, I don't need to tell you, this is Madison, I don't need to tell you all these things. But we have done it before and we can do it again. And I think that that's what's so important to remember because for years people were sort of aware of the issue but it wasn't a pressing priority. And now that it's becoming more pressing, that the reaction we see too often is people veering quickly into the despair off-ramp. And that's not the, that doesn't lead to a good place. But what does is getting involved and becoming publicly active. Not just having a private opinion about this, but being ready to bear the kind of public witness that is a big part of what inspires all of us to be part of religious communities. The next story I want to share was actually about seven years or so ago now, and it was the lead up to the Paris climate negotiations. And there was very, very little momentum among the major governments of the world to try to make this agreement happen because previous efforts had failed in a really depressing kind of way. And so Ban Ki-moon, who was the Secretary General of the UN at that point in time, who cared deeply about this issue, he said there's going to be a global climate change summit in 2014, and by 2015 we're going to have a global agreement. So he makes this great proclamation. People are like, what? And right away afterwards, he called 10 different civil society organizations and said, I need your help. You've got to put a ton of people in the streets to show political leaders that there is the moral will to make this happen. We got involved in, in, in organizing a diverse range of religious and spiritual communities around the greater New York area, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, Sikhs, Jain, Baha'i. It was this absolutely spectacularly diverse community of utter rainbow coalition of, of people of faith. And about three weeks before the march, I get a call from the biggest atheist group in the country. I was sort of curious, what's up? And they were ticked off because we didn't have an atheist group as part of the mix. I was like, we didn't know you wanted to be part of the club here. <laughs> so we, we bring the atheists in. We add them to the drop-down menu. Atheist begins with A, which puts them right at the top of the list. <laughs> but it was just this wonderful signal that there is something in relationship to our relationship with the earth that is much bigger and much deeper than the words we use. There's something so fundamental about humanity's connection to this precious planet that everybody wanted to be part of the mix. The day of the march comes. We've been hoping and praying as a collective that we get 100,000 people to turn out. So when 400,000 people showed up and marched peacefully through the streets of New York and hundreds of thousands more in different places around the world. It sent this unmistakable jolt of electricity 
into the cultural, moral, political landscape and played a decisive role, along with many other good factors, in creating that landmark agreement. And it was because people of faith, people of faith played an incredibly important role. We had a wonderful team. I, you know, we live in northern New Jersey, and there's this whole cottage industry in North Jersey of these carpenters who make floats for the big parades in New York City. So we hired one of these carpenters to do a, a school bus size replica of Noah's Ark. And then we had a biodiesel-powered pickup truck pull this ark through the, the streets of New York and big sign on the side of the pickup truck saying, we are all Noah now. You know, the, the Muslim contingent brought this huge inflatable mosque that they gather and have at their things. The pagans, you know, lots of traditional religious people are a little questionable about what is this pagan stuff. The pagans showed up. It was like full druid. It was like a druid festival or something. I mean, it was just, it was just this absolutely beautifully spectacular, diverse collection of people of faith. And, you know, we marched as a faith contingent out of our sort of starting block, and there was this old sort of 60-year-old New York cop watching on the corner. He's looking at us and he goes, Jesus Christ, you guys really showed up. But it was just this, you know, sacred, beautiful, funny, passionate, caring, public expression of faith. And it was a fundamental part of what helped turn the tide, and it will be public expressions of faith. Not most all of them, not nearly that big. But together, those kinds of expressions of public concern will be an essential part of what will turn the tide. And we can do it, and it is a great experience to do it, and we must. You know, there's a wonderful song that's getting more and more traction among religious and the climate movement generally that says, you know, I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter saying, keep it in the ground. Keep the oil and gas in the ground. It's got to happen. The amount of money that is committed towards new fossil fuel investments, about just shy of $600 billion a year for the next decade, if that happens, we will go way past the safeguard levels of climate warming. And if that same amount of money was shifted into renewables, we would meet the energy gap, we would create millions of jobs that would lift people out of poverty, and we would have taken a huge step towards making the world a better place, and a place that certainly is more expressive of what we all know God wants for the human family. So I'm going to close by encouraging all of you the next time you have the chance not to be private about why you care about God's creation. Tell people it's because your faith as a Christian makes you believe in the power of love and that there's no way that you can be a loving person while destroying the planet. Tell people it's because you believe in the power of compassion 
And there is no question that being compassionate to our sisters and brothers around the planet means being compassionate about the planet. Tell people it is because you believe that we worship a God of justice and that there can be no justice between people if there is not justice between people and the planet. Tell people why you care because of your faith. Be willing to go out in public. Be willing to speak up. Do so proudly as a Christian because I don't need to tell you there are other Christian voices out there that are badly misguided on this issue. We need to stand up in public. When we do, it makes a difference. And when we do, we experience the kind of transformation that Charlie referred to in his opening prayer. This is a fundamental part of what it means to be a person of faith as we walk into the future. And we are ready to walk there with you. And I hope you'll join us. Amen. <laughs>